needs to do. You know what? And in the ring with Dan and Benny, hey, brother man, he's about the most cat. I just love him to death. I love you. Thanks for having me. Hey, you're the best. I'm telling you, brother. In the ring with Dan and Benny. Yeah. We love you. Thank Woo. you so much, Dan. Oh, yeah. <laughs>
he was just something special. I believe at one point, wasn't he the, the world's oldest living wrestler? Yes, yes. He and he lived, almost made it to 100, correct? Right, yeah. It was, you know, like, we would go someplace because they would, we did a lot of the events where they would recognize him and put him into these special organizations. And they would say to him, the 99-year-old, the, the, the oldest living champion mm -hmm. in professional wrestling. And he's 99. And my father would say, whoa, whoa. 99 and a half. <laughs> Don't forget <laughs> the half, he said. It took a long time to get these six months. <laughs> and when he passed away, he was just like two months shy, three months wow. shy of 100. And I, I saw a couple of his, you know, his, not really promos, but when he chatted, you know, and even well into his 90s, he seemed like he was sharp as a tack. Oh, yeah. You know, every, uh, I'm sure you guys know John Pantosi. Yes. Every every Sunday, John, every Sunday morning, John Pantosi would call my father and they would talk for like half hour, 45 minutes. And every Sunday night, he would he would he would get his phone call uh, from Danny Hodge and they would talk for another half hour, 45 minutes. This was every week. Uh, he was really on a ball. He knew what he was doing. So, so there was no real life heat between him and Danny Hodge. They were they were friends. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean, you know, my dad realized what what had happened. They were wrestling in Oklahoma City, and uh, was for the championship. And uh, they had wrestled two weeks before in Tulsa, and uh, my dad had beaten Danny so bad that they couldn't continue the match. That they had to stop the match. And Danny Hodge swore he was going to get even in Oklahoma City. And, you know, going back in those days, you know, they put in there like, I think, like 14,000 people at three and four dollars a piece. I mean, you're going back in the 50s now. That's some big money. And uh, my dad said they were working. And he said he he locked up with Danny and he said to Danny, he said, for some reason, he said, I can't stop sweating. And Danny said, it's blood. And he had cut my dad, his Danny's father jumped in the ring and he had cut my father from the top of his neck straight across his back from the left of his neck to the right of his uh, thigh. And he got 200 and I think 240 stitches, something like that. Got out of the hospital, jumped in the car he had, and drove back home to Persephone, New Jersey. And, and he I mean, wrestled a week later, probably. <laughs> no, no, he didn't. He was, he was out for a while. That was kind of the point where uh, uh, he decided that that was probably going to be it for him. He was, you know, he was getting up in age at that point. And so um, he always had a great relationship with Vince McMahon Sr. and Jr. He always had a great relationship. But uh, my dad goes back to working for Jess McMahon with Vince McMahon. Uh, my dad, when he just started, him and, and Vince Sr. would go out and put the posters up before going to the show and then Vince would work the box office and my dad would wrestle. 
And uh, that's how my dad really got into the business through Toots Month. Didn't your dad? Um, I, I, it's been a while since I did the research, but I believe your dad actually wrestled Buddy Rogers before he was even Buddy Rogers. Yeah, he wrestled him in Newark, New Jersey. Uh, no, I'm sorry, Trenton, New Jersey. But he was Herman Rhodey then, right? Yep. Yep. Okay. Yeah, he wrestled him in in Trenton, New Jersey. You know, there there was some. It, it kind of it's disappointing sometimes. You know, you. I I really stayed away from it. And, and Benny, you know, I promised you. I said whenever I do it, I will promise you. I'll give you the first one. But I I stayed away from all of this because there was so much baloney out there. I mean, you always hear about the bad things that the guys. Most people. I I am fortunate enough that almost every superstar that ever wrestled, I've either had coffee with, ate with, driven in the car with, had some relationship with every single one of them. And I'm going from Buddy Rogers to Hulk Hogan to whoever you want in between, and especially Bruno. And, I mean, it was just it was a whole different world than, than what people make it believed to be. You know, like I had read one of the, the things on the thing was when my dad got fired. My dad never got fired. My dad retired from uh, the WWF at the time. He had retired. It was about two or three months later that, that I had wound up to Vince, Mc, Mr. McMahon, and let me tell you something about that man. Besides my dad, that man was was and always will be my idol. He was just the sharpest guy you ever want to meet. I mean, he was, there can't be wrestling or there can't be a WWF or E or G, whatever they want to call it, without a McMahon. I mean, they really are wrestling. And I went up to him and I just said, look, I have an opportunity to go on my own. Uh, I just wanted to come and tell you, we were in Hamburg at TV before the show and it was in the morning. And I said, I just wanted to tell you, I don't think I should be here. And he just wished me well, wished me luck. And, uh, I went on and, and my dad came later at that time. We started the ICW. We had some, I don't want to mention any names, but we had some backers that were not, uh, they wouldn't make the top 10 in the United States. Let's put it that way. Uh, but they were, they were good backers and they, they helped us get it off the ground. And, uh, it just, it just rolled. It was like, it, it went, it took off like crazy. I mean, uh, we started out with Service Electra in uh, in Allentown, and I met with some people. And next thing I know, I had an appointment with Sports Channel in New York, and we landed Sports Channel New York. Then we got Sports Channel Massachusetts. Then we got ABC in Maine. And before we knew it, Brian, I'm I'm might be mistaken, but we had 65, 68 percent of the whole United States. Yeah, you're going you're going back to a time when it was unheard of for a local or a regional promotion to have national television syndication. It was it, it's something. 
You know, to me, the irony is, I'm sorry, Dan, you were going to say, um, the irony is this, you guys flourished at a time when, you know, most of the territories, the existing territories were kind of folding up and Vince McMahon was taking over a lot of things. But, you know, you guys sprung up at that time and you, you, you prospered. Well, you know, I got to give a lot of credit to that to my dad. Let me tell you why. We were we were working with everybody. We were working with Bill Watts. We were working with Vern Gagne. We were working with Jim Crockett. We were working with Carlos Colon. We were working with Vince McMahon. He was giving me talent. We and and again, I, I have to say the credit doesn't go to anybody but my dad because all these guys. I mean, you take if if, if you take Danny Hodge, my dad trained him. Bill Watts, my dad trained him. I mean, he goes back with Vern Gagne. They they traveled together. They wrestled together. Uh, if if you go to Texas, Fritz von Erich, uh, forget it. They were like best of buddies. But it was, again, it was a different time. The guys became friends because they were together. It wasn't today. It's like... I, I listen or, or, or I, I, I watch and, and like, there's no friendship there. It's like, I'm done working. I'll see you next week. You know, you got the car with this guy and you drove for six hours. You know, you did your bologna blowout. You know, you got your bottle of wine or your six pack of beer and you got your sandwiches and you drove for four hours, six hours. We used to have to drive from Bangor, Maine. And Vinny, how many times Vinny was with us in the car? We would drive from Bangor, Maine, have to drive to Allentown, Pennsylvania, and be there by 11 o'clock in the morning for TV. Wow. Yeah, and that was nonstop. Everybody would drive for two hours. Four guys in the car, everybody would drive for two hours. We're coming down the Maine Turnpike. We're leaving Bangor. We're just about in Portland or Biddeford, somewhere in that area in Maine just getting ready to go into Portsmouth and all of a sudden the sirens are going on. They pull us over and there's Vinny in the back of the seat throwing beer cans as he's drinking them out the window <laughs> and we got pulled over. But, but that's the way it was in those days. You know, every single, every single guy I, I look at and, and so many of them deserve what they got. I found Tito in, in, in Albuquerque and Amarillo, Texas. I found DiBiase in Amarillo, Texas. One of the guys I, I tried to help, but I couldn't help a lot was Manny Fernandez. I loved that guy. But I took, I took Tito and Teddy here. I called up Vince and Vince told me he didn't need anybody. They were going to do TV that, that week. And he said, no, I don't need anybody. And I said, I said, if I fly him in, on my dime, and you don't want them, I'll pay for their way home. But if you want them, I want my money back. <laughs> now, this is Vince Sr. And uh, he he finally said, okay, because he's the one who sent me to Amarillo with Blackjack Mulligan and Dick Murdoch to open up. They, they bought the territory from the Funks. Right. And uh, he did. He We flew them in. And uh, I just asked two things. I said, I want Tito. I think 
I forget who worked with who. I said, but the two guys I want him to work with was Jose Estrada and Johnny Rods. Because I knew they were they were the best of the best as far as wrestling. And they could make somebody look like 10 cents or make them look like a million dollars. And I knew both of those guys were good friends. And they went out there. And Vince Sr., if if any of you guys ever knew him, he would sit there with a hand, handful of quarters and he would watch the matches and just take the quarters and up and down with the quarters. And he got done and he said, see Phil Zacco, get a check for the airlines. <laughs> it was my happy day. Those people expressed it was like $29 a person, you know? <laughs> you know, let me... Go back for a second. Um, you were talking about, well, let's just say we were talking about uh, how old your father was when he was wrestling, among other things. And and there's a, a I respect his, his talent, but he's used more as an attraction today. A wrestler named Mike Jackson, who just wrestled recently at 73 uh, for Impact. And I'm, I question more for, for you, Brian. Do you have any kind of special commentary? Is it different? commentating for a match when you have such a seasoned veteran in the ring or is it something you don't want to distract from the match by focusing on how old the competitor is so i would definitely give accolades to the performer because let's face it getting into the ring at 73 years old and being able to do some of the things that it takes uh to perform and entertain inside the wrestling ring i think that deserves accolades i would never um use it as a like I'd never insult the performer never make age um an issue but definitely uh would give props to the person uh for the athleticism that they're that they're um uh, that they're that they're showing um as they as they wrestle inside the ring i, I think it's important to acknowledge that Mario, uh, be, you started with your dad and then, you know, continue with you. And also your brothers, uh, Tom and Joe, are in the business as well. What, what, what was their involvement? Well, uh, my, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, my brother, Joe, uh, he became a wrestler. Uh, he, he wanted to get into the business. And, of course, my dad helped him. And uh, he started he started with us. And... Uh, uh, Carlos Colon had come to do a show with us and Carlos seen him and Carlos said, I want to take him back to Puerto Rico with me. And he put him with, uh, I can't remember the guy's name. He Al Perez, with, Al Perez, in New York rock and roll rock, uh, express, rock, right? Yeah. Right. No, they were the rockers. The rockers. Right. I'm sorry. They were the, rockers, they were the New York yeah. rockers, correct? New York rockers. Yeah. Okay. And boy in Puerto Rico, they were like gold. I mean, they just, they hit it off. And, uh, and then from there he went to Bill Watts and then he worked for us for quite a while. And, uh, and then he just decided he just didn't want to do it anymore. He had all the opportunities. I mean, he was, uh, Ole Anderson said he would take him. I wanted him, but, but he just turned it down. He didn't want to travel no more. He just didn't, didn't like being seven days on the road and that's the way it was in those days you were on the road i mean you worked for bill watts 
you went from Tulsa to Louisiana. I mean, forget about it. You know, you were all over the place. And uh, it was just too much for him. And he decided uh, he didn't want to do it anymore. Now he works for a Japanese company called Camacho. And he's one of the major supervisors of that company. Okay. So, you know, he might, he, he's doing well. And Tom, Tom was the referee and he come in late. Tommy come in late. Uh, he came in to the ICW um, and uh, through a favor through, through Vince, we got him a, a New York referee license. And uh, he ref- he refereed quite a bit of the uh, WWF, uh, or yeah, it was still F at that time, I believe. He refereed quite a bit of the WWF Madison Square Garden shows. Did he did he commentate? I I don't know why I have a vague yeah, memory of him commentating. Yeah, he did. Yeah, he did some with Brian, right, Brian? <laughs> yes, sir. He was. Um, he liked to be called the mediator when we were. Uh, when we were doing the commentary, uh, and a car- if you've if you've never met Tom Savoldi, um, you would as soon as you did, you'd remember Tom for the rest of your <laughs> life. He's uh, <laughs> over the top character, and everybody absolutely loves him. Tommy, you always said it how he saw it, and um, he was a lot of fun to to work with, and he and he's a, a lot of he's a great guy to know. Uh, wasn't he Frank Fornini? Did he did he go by Frank Fornini? I don't know why that sticks no, in my uh, head. No, Tom Fornini. He did go by Tom Fornini? Yeah, yeah. Okay. And uh, with us, he was Tom Savoldi. But uh, in New York, you have to go by your, your – uh, with the State Athletic Commission, uh, you had to go by your your exact name. And the same thing in New Jersey. When I had him referee in, in New Jersey – when there was still a, a license, because there was only three licenses in New Jersey. And that's why at that time we were running the Meadowlands with uh, Vern Gagne and Watts and uh, Ole Anderson and Crockett. We were all running the Meadowlands together. And uh, we were the only ones because there was only like three licenses. Monsoon had a license. My dad had a license, and a fellow by the name who was long gone, Willie Gildensburg. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Hey, <clears throat> Brian, then, I'm going to ask you, uh, pretend for a second Mario is not on the other end of this call. Where does where does Tom rank among your favorite co-commentators? <laughs> so, <clears throat> Tom, Tom is actually lower on the list. Um I worked with a lot of great ones. Uh, the late Tony Rumble, uh, he was great to work with when I first was starting out. Uh, Mario and I have done some great commentary together. Uh, Mike Mittman is my all-time favorite broadcast partner. Mike used to be the timekeeper at the Bell at the oh yeah the TV things yeah, and so um, he did some. He came in to do some commentary as well for years. As a matter of fact, uh, Mike and I worked together and. Uh, Mike is going to be at the top of the list, and Tommy, I love him, but he's going to be maybe four or five. You know, he, was, what, he was a heel commentator, right? He put he over was, the heels, yeah, didn't he? he? A, yes, he, yep, he was a heel commentator um, uh, in the beginning when he when he was first uh, starting to commentate. Uh, in later years, he 
he was uh, more neutral, um, more like when he was refereeing. Um, but yeah, he was, uh, he, that's when he was, um, the mediator. He wanted to be referred to as mediator when, okay. uh, when he first started commentating. Yeah. Good memory. You know, you took up a name, Mike Mittman, and let me just say something about Mike Mittman. Mike Mittman is the one who helped me start ICW. He uh, he introduced me to the un, <clears throat> unnamed people, uh, and uh, he got us on our very first television station in Allentown, Pennsylvania, and that's Service Electra, and uh, that was our very first television station, and I own close to maybe 4,000 hours of wrestling. Um, that is all prestige. It's all kept in a concealed vault. Um, and I have the original tapes that we started with, with Bruno and Mike Mittman doing the commentating. And that was when uh, David was, David San Martino just started wrestling. And that's when we started that business. It was a whole different time. It was it was a whole different way. Uh, I you know I got some some great guys out there. Gino Caruso with the uh, he runs the ECPW and Tommy Ferrero with the with the IPW I believe it is. I mean those guys run some really great shows. And if you go to those shows, it's still the wrestling because they're using guys like Tommy Dreamer who I love. He's probably one of my, one of my favorite people to, to, to see them perform and still get the people. I mean, no, they don't do 20,000 people, but you go to a, uh, a Gino show. He's got his two, 300 people in there. If you go to Tommy's show, he's got two, 300 people and it shows wrestling the way it was, not the way it is, the way it was. And to me, that's something that I hope never goes away. Yeah, yeah, I, I look at these guys, you know, like you got friends like Davey O'Hannon, Johnny Rods. I mean, I talk to them constantly. I mean, we are very, still very, very close. But every single guy that you've ever seen on WWE or WCW, I could probably tell you a story about each and every one of those guys. And I probably had coffee or lunch or something with every, or drove in the car. And they're, they're totally different people than, than what you see. And they cared about each other. No, actually we've had Davey on the show a couple of times. Uh, once to talk about uh, Dominic DiNucci and then the other time to talk about uh, Baron Cicluna. And, you know, him and Dominic probably wrestled 150 times. And, I mean, but the love he had for both of those guys, it, you couldn't even put it in words. Yeah. Uh, they were all close friends. I mean, Dominic and Bruno and Cicluna. I mean, you're talking Gino Grilla Monsoon was like part of our family. I mean, if we ever had Sundays off, we would either go to their house or they'd come to our house. Uh, 
I was very close with his son. I mean, uh, Victor Canonis, who he took in as a son, he actually adopted him. Uh, him and I uh, worked in Puerto Rico, and when he died, I bought 51% of Puerto Rico. And uh, he was just a, he was just a great guy in Monsoon. I, I got to tell you a funny story about Monsoon. I'm in Amarillo, Texas. Vince sends me to Amarillo, Texas. So I'm in Amarillo, Texas, and I meet these two people, and, and I'm going to try to remember their names, but it's not important. But I meet these two people, and, and they convinced me, uh, oh, Rags and Mexican were, were their names. And uh, they said, hey, you want to buy some liquor? This liquor store shutting down. So I bought all this liquor from this liquor store. So not knowing anything, I knew Gino liked Amaretta. I knew Gino liked Sambuca. I took all of that, packed it up, and I sent it to Gino by, uh, not Federal Express, what's the other one? Uh, UPS. Uh, UPS. I sent it to Gino, UPS. Next thing I get a call from Gino. He says, you got to tell these guys that I had nothing to do with this. He had the FBI at his house because I sent him like three big boxes <laughs> full of liquor. I didn't, know you send it. I didn't know you couldn't send liquor from from state to state. <laughs> he, he says, you got to tell him. He says, tell him I had nothing to do with this. They want to lock me to frig up. <laughs> I love that man. I did. I love that man. You know, it's funny, Benny, you talk about Dominic and Davey and, and some of the people we've had on recently, our 100th episode, we had Ken Patera. And anybody who wrestled back then, even even in the later stages of back then, it's they tell the stories, and, and some, especially some of the ones that are still involved in the business today. And it's an entirely different life. And you talked about being part of your family. It's it's an entirely different life and bond that the wrestlers had back then than the talent does today with the road trips and the booking and the hotels and this you know fat living off the gas stations. The thing that the unique experiences. I mean, even some of the family members we've had on, Betty, they all tell the same the same stories. It's not it. It's sad it's that to, yeah, exactly. It, it's it's one part of wrestling that today's wrestlers just will never experience again no the friendship will never be there you know the, you know like bruno bruno whenever we did boston gardens because my dad was in charge of all new england <clears throat> excuse me so whenever we did boston gardens we would drive from new jersey and we'd go to hartford connecticut because that's where bruno would fly into we'd pick him up and the first stop i'm talking about 9 30 10 o'clock in the mor morning and the first stop would be at this italian deli and we'd go in here and get salami sandwiches provolones and everything this is 9 30 in the morning and now we're driving to boston from hartford eating italian sandwiches and they're drinking wine i'm driving they're they're drinking wine and eating italian sandwiches but that's the way it was it was that you know it was that you go out of your way to do that. It's it's not like it's not like it anymore. Everybody stayed in the hotel rooms. There was two, three guys in the room. Everybody traveled together. If there was a snowstorm, there would be eight cars following each other down the highway to make sure that everybody is okay to where we were going. 
I bet you today you couldn't even ask the guy for a quarter. You know, it's it's a whole different ball game. You know, it, it sounds like Mario, you you have, you have a book that needs to be written with all these stories. But um, I, I wanted to kind of tout ICW because you know a lot of people, uh, you know, ECW has gone down in history as you know a, a major promotion. But I don't think ICW gets the credit it deserves. Um, for the you know for the amount of time that you guys were in business, I mean, like you said, you mentioned the cross promoting, but you even uh, you, you cross promoted with uh, WWC, and I, if memory serves me correctly, I believe Dory Funk, uh, you guys uh, sponsored that match with him and Cologne, and I, yeah. it was the, that was the only time I believe that the title changed hands outside of Puerto Rico. Is that correct? That's correct, and we did the the Meadowlands show. I think I mentioned that earlier. We did the Meadowlands show where where we took in all the promoters together. And because nobody could get into the Meadowlands, Vince had a lock on it. But we had the license and we got the Meadowlands. We did that. We did Roosevelt Raceway. I mean, uh, it, we didn't push ICW. And that was my dad a little bit. We followed his his kind of his instructions on this. My dad's thought was we get to work with everybody, including Vince. When 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 we went over to Venezuela, I had Rick Martel, I had Dinkin Doink, I had Bastion Booger, I mean I had Rick Martel, I had a Greg Valentine. They were all working with Vince. He gave me them to take over to Venezuela. When I did the first ever show in, 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 um, what the hell is it? <laughs> My mind's going. When we did the, the, the first show in Saudi Arabia, we were the first ones there. We were there twice before anybody else ever came. And he gave me Mulligan and he gave me all the big stars, Putsky. He gave me a mall to take over there. So my dad felt by staying under, under the wire. <laughs> We like if I call Bill Watts, I would get Tito or Teddy or whoever I wanted. If I call Crockett, I could get when I did Roosevelt Raceway, I got Flair. I mean, we were fortunate enough to to be able to con because of my dad's contact, and it's all my dad. It really was all my dad because of his contacts and because of. What he gave the business, they gave it back to him because most of them, he did something for them. When Crockett was in trouble with the NWA, he took the junior heavyweight title there. Him and Leroy McGurk. And I'm going way back. I mean, he, he helped in so many ways that so many people paid him back. Ole Anderson took the trip to, to the Philippines with us. He came to the, when we did the Philippines, we were really the first and only group going out there. We did Venezuela, Philippines, Saudi Arabia, the Bahamas, Bermuda. We were all over the place. And a lot had to do because of my dad, you know, and, and, and Mr. McMahon and Vinny. 
because once Mr. McMahon was gone, when I did the Philippines, or I should say Venezuela, when I did Venezuela, he gave me the Bushwhackers. He gave me everybody. And that was young Vinny. He did that. You know, I I see so many things written about him and, and him and I were never, let me say, we had a friendship, but we were never like best of friends in any way. He did things I didn't like. I'm sure I did things he didn't like. But one thing I will never forget is the day my dad died, I got a phone call. And it was Vince on the other end of the line crying. And to me, it showed just who he really was. As tough as nails as people might think is and as has. Look, if you're in this business, if you're not tough, you can't be in this business. You got to deal with these guys every day. These guys, some of them, you will. The, the sad part about this business, I'm telling you all the good things. The sad part, there's a lot of assholes. <laughs> that, that's the <laughs> sad part. I mean, but 99% of everybody that I say I dealt with were great. They were all great. And again, my dad, he's the one they respected. Bruiser Brody, one of my favorite friends. <clears throat> His wife, I still back and forth with Curtis, back and forth with Dorothy all the time. I mean, those are friendships you can't, the hearts, the, the, the hearts. I mean, my dad and his father was like, forget about it. When we went to the Cauliflower Club, you, could, you needed a crowbar to take them two guys apart. That's the old friendships. And again, today, I bet you 90% of these matches, the guy's done, gets stressed, and is gone. Catches a plane somewhere. Yep. Brian, I wanted to ask you, how did you get involved in wrestling? What was your path to, uh, <laughs> to professional wrestling? Oh, no. So I, I loved it as a kid. I, I can remember being as young as eight or nine years old and the matches used to come to Boston once a month and my family and I would get on the train and we'd go into Boston. <clears throat> we'd watch the matches. I was hooked. So fast forward many years later, I'm watching international world-class championship wrestling on sports channel, New England. And there's a promotion for hiring wrestlers, referees, managers, valets, announcers. And I thought, this is my chance. So I called the number and a nice, I spoke to a nice lady and she gave me Tom Savoldi's number. And I talked to Tom and he said, come up to Laconia, New Hampshire. We're doing a show at the high school and I can't promise you anything, but uh, come on up and we'll try you out. and We'll see how it goes. So I went and hours went by and I was watching all these guys cut their promos and I'm sitting there, a young kid, just amazed at what I'm watching and can't believe that I actually have this chance to do this. And apparently the ring announcer didn't show up. So Mario came up to me and said, hey, you want to be a ring announcer? I said, okay. And uh, the rest is history, as they say. Wow. And what year was that? I, 
That was in 1991. Okay. I had just gotten married, and I, I thought my wife thought that I had lost my mind, but we're still married 33 years later, so. <laughs> <laughs> she didn't think, she either, lost, she either thinks I lost mine, or she just completely lost hers. I don't no, know. you didn't lose it. She, she has it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You got that right. <laughs> and, and, you know, like, we we we've given some footage this uh to uh uh this uh i can't think of the name of the program they have on television showing the um how wrestling was uh what's that program i think the rock is doing it now he took it over but is it, uh, uh, tales uh, of the territories i think or something like yeah, that yeah yeah tales of the territories so we've given them well, some footage yeah. That when when they need it, you know, we 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 help on that as much as they can because I like to see the old guys again and give them whatever they can, a little alculay out there. But you know, the one thing I didn't care for is they did that Andre special, and that was so off base. It, it was I traveled with Andre for four years. I, I traveled with him. I was with Andre when he broke his leg in Beth Israel Hospital in Boston. And uh, it, 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 it didn't show real Andre. On, you know, that guy was, he had this guy that, this guy, Frenchie, Andre got hurt in Florida. And this guy, Frenchie, drove him back to wherever he had to go. And till the day Andre died, and I believe even after Frenchie lived in Andre's house and Andre paid him. And all he, all he wanted Frenchie to do was to take care of his house in Carolina. And, uh, but Andre, you know, like when he was in Beth Israel hospital, first of all, we get him in the hospital and that was a job. And then, first of all, they can't get a bed, so they have to get a welder. And they got two beds, and they took the head off of one and put the two beds together. <laughs> then they can't give him a gown; <laughs> nothing fit him. I mean, it was like out of a out of a storybook. So we get him in the hospital. We finally get him there, and uh, first thing he does is he calls up this. Chinese restaurant that he is friends with in Boston, and next thing you know, there's like a truckload of food coming up to the to the <laughs> hospital floor, and uh, liquor, like forget about it, and I'll never forget, there was a lady next door to him, there was a lady in the next room over, that was like, from the Boston Philharmonic Orchestra, she was like 100 years old, and he got a bottle of Dom Perignon champagne, went in there and them two had a drink together a few days later that lady passed away but i bet you she'll that was the highlight of her time in in that hospital but we we went look i go to the hospital i went back to the hotel to change i come back to the hospital and see everybody going crazy on the floor i'm going what's the matter and they're going andre's gone i said andre, how the hell do you lose a giant I mean, what do you mean he's God? We can't find him. Now, he's in this nightgown that they sewed together for him. He's got the, the band around this thing. 
I said to the lady, I said, is there a French restaurant near here? She goes, there's one just right outside down the block. I go walking in this restaurant. Here is the giant sitting at the table, eating all the doctors around him. <laughs> and he's just, boss, what's the matter? I said, you're not supposed to be here. Oh, don't worry, boss. They like me here. <laughs> and he just had his had his dinner and said, we go back to the hospital now. And uh, he was just like, he was one of the greatest guys in the world. He really was. He would, he would do anything you asked him to do. He was so easy to be with. Um, the only thing, Andre, you know, they said how he drank more beer than anybody. That is, that is not a true story. You will never believe who beat Andre in a beer drinking contest in a snowstorm in Portland, Maine at the Holiday Inn on Exit 8. Sky Low Low. I was going to guess the fabulous Moolah. No, Sky <laughs> Low Low, the midget. Wow. The, the midget out drank him. They had a beer drinking contest, and Monsoon was the referee. <laughs> and Peter Maivia <laughs> was there, and, and uh, Peter got up. Peter says to the band, I mean, you couldn't go out. It was a blizzard. Peter says, and they had a band in the hotel. And Peter goes, I want to sing Tiny Bubbles. And there was a bunch of motorcycle guys sitting there. And they told him, why don't you just shut up and sit down? And Peter goes, oh, brother, don't do that. Let me buy you a drink. I just want to sing Tiny Bubbles. Now, Peter's gone. He's, he's over the hill to start with. He gets up on the stage and he starts singing Tiny Bubbles. And the one guy from the motorcycle got up with his glass of beer and threw the beer on Peter. Oh, no. <laughs> well, that motorcycle guy ended up in the pool outside because he went right through the window of the hotel. <laughs> <laughs> and Peter just kept on singing. He just kept on singing his song. <laughs> but again, at, in that hotel that night was Bruno, Monsoon, uh, I mean, everybody was there. Uh, G, uh, D, Ho and Dean Ho and, and Tony Greer. I mean, once that started, it was like these guys were surrounded. I mean, there was no place for these guys to go. You know, we, we started the show. We said we had some preliminary questions before we got to the main event. So as, as we uh, head towards the end of the show, let's get to the main event. Can you please uh, please tell our listeners about Ultimate Classic Wrestling? Brian, I'm going to let you do that. <laughs> so Ultimate Classic Wrestling is hundreds upon hundreds of hours of classic wrestling. Not just ICW, not just IWCCW, but world-class championship wrestling. There's uh, Global Wrestling Federation the American Wrestling Association, Pro Wrestling USA, Wild West Wrestling, the USWA, plus uh, the NWA and territories too, like Georgia, Mid-South, Florida, Memphis, California, Detroit, all of these hotbeds of wrestling across the United States, all classic wrestling. Name the wrestler, and there is probably footage out there, and not just footage, guys, but these are full-length shows, and I think 
this is what helps Ultimate Classic Wrestling be set apart from some of the other offerings that are out there. These are full-length shows you watch from start to finish. You can relive those angles. You can see things that you've never seen before, and you'd just be like, oh, wow, or I remember that, or, oh, geez, I didn't know he worked for this organization. Classic and fun and entertaining and all free to watch on um, Roku and Amazon Fire TV. And, and you know, one thing, too, we are also on in-demand. We do an in-demand show once a month. We've been doing it for the last several years. Uh, and uh, it's called Mega Mega Moments in Wrestling. Uh, I'm sorry, Wrestling Icons is, is for in-demand. Wrestling Icons, and that's on... It's on your television now on your pay-per-view. So I, I've been a subscriber to Sadmar for, you know, for years. It sounds like you're taking Sadmar and you're like upping it to a whole new level as far as the, uh, the content. Well, exactly. there's a guy named Daniel and you've spoken to him. He, Is that Mr. Archambault? Yeah, he drives me crazy, but he has taken this to a whole new level. He actually took me out of so-called retirement and Brian, I took Brian out of so-called retirement and right. he got us, he got us so interested again. And he's just, a, I mean, he's, he's a magician. He's a magician. What he does with the, with the, with the footage. And he's, he's a real wrestling guy. I mean, you talk to him, you're talking, you know, it's going to take you back to the eighties, the nineties, the early two thousand. You know, it, it's a whole different world. And we want to show to people that this is the way it really was. You know, it's an angle was an angle. An angle didn't happen on Monday and you've seen the show on Wednesday. An angle went for a month. You know, they built it and built it and built it. And, and, uh, if I could just talk about angle for a moment, if uh, if I may. One of the biggest angles in the world of international world-class championship wrestling was the who's the greatest intercontinental champion of all time. Is it the honky-tonk man or is it ravishing Rick Rude? And for weeks there would be promos and there would be uh, viewer vote-ins and there would be interviews. And then uh, sort of a, uh, a myth went around that the match between the honky-tonk man and Rick Rude never took place in international world-class championship wrestling. Nothing could be further from the truth. It happened in June of 91. And this match is going to be part of ultimate classic wrestling. Yeah. Our kickoff date is the 11th of March is our kickoff date. Uh, but it's actually on now. You can still pick it up, but it's not fully, fully loaded yet. But uh, our, our, and, and that match will definitely be won. And, you know, one other thing we were really fortunate to be a part of, if you guys remember when Skolan threw in the towel with, with Bob Backlund? Oh, I know where you're going with this. Yes, please. I'm, I'm, I'm very, very anxious to hear this. Yeah, we, when that happened, Bob Backlund, very close friend, very, very close friend of my dad's and myself. And Arnold Skolan is, my brother's godfather. Uh, and the Sheik, he won the title from 
from uh, Backlund, from, yeah. uh, from Backlund, and uh, but then was told he he was given like a month notice. You know, like he won the title, and next time around he lost it. It was all over. Right, well, he lost uh, the whole garden, Yeah, mm-hmm. right. He so I got. Bob Backlund, and I got the sheet, and we did a TV program with Bob. I know this is a promo. We're going to be showing it. We did a TV program with Bob Backlund. We're interviewing him, and we're telling him that whether you knew it or not, Skolin intentionally threw the towel, and he got paid. Well, Bob goes crazy and wrecks the whole set but we had the sheet coming on and we took that and Brian, how long did we, that one, we took that every place. We took that to oh, Florida, that, every yeah. place. Yeah. We got a lot of mileage out of that one for sure. But so, we're, we're going to be showing that also on, I mean, there, there's some great stuff there. And then again, there's the stuff we did in Puerto Rico, which people have never seen. Um, somebody, uh, the great matches there. I mean, I mean, Jeff Jarrett, uh, you just name them. And we had them all in Puerto Rico because we were dealing with uh, WCW at the time. And they were given the solar talent in Puerto Rico with me and Victor. So how, how can they get this again? What, what, are the, what are the platforms? So right now, uh, free to watch on Roku and on Amazon Fire TV. Uh, throughout 2023, uh, it'll be launching on Google Play, Apple TV, and uh, there will also be a web version that will be forthcoming as well. All right. That sounds great. I mean, for somebody, I mean, it sounds like it, it's a dream come true for an old school wrestling fan because it's all in one place. Exactly. Exactly. And, and uh, as I mentioned, it's it's not just spotlight matches. It's not just specific stars it's pay-per-view events uh, that have taken place in the past it's the weekly television shows specials interviews there's some behind the scenes stuff that's never been seen before uh it is it's soup to nuts so the, i mean I, i'm thinking in my mind so i i could watch i want to watch an angle build from the start so you want you know and you said they're all you know whole shows so you can watch week yep. after week and watch the angle slowly build up till it's come culmination Exactly. I like that. You know, we, we, one of the matches I think of right away, you guys all know Little Guido. Yes. Mm-hmm. He, he comes to do his very first match with me at Cutcher's. We used to run Cutcher's every year for like four times a year. We would do big shows in Cutcher's. And uh, he does his first match, and I think it was with Tony Rumble. I'm not sure. And he misses the spot and he hits the post and breaks his jaw. Yeah, and geez. and we got his mother and father in the audience, <laughs> and it was he took him there to watch his debut of professional wrestling. But uh, like, and I'm sure he told him not to worry before the match. Yeah, right. And <laughs> you know, those guys are all still still close friends. I talk to them constantly. I mean, that's one thing I've learned, you know, from doing this podcast and writing my stories is that 
it truly is a brotherhood. And even the guys who you'd watch on TV beat the crap out of each other. They they would give a kidney if one if the other one needed it. Yep. Oh yeah. It it was it was like it was a real brotherhood. You know, I mean, these guys really cared for each other. It was you know. It, it was it was a big thing, and, and and you know, and of course, I got Zabisco right after the Bruno thing, and uh, because we sent him to uh, my dad got him into uh, Bergania, and uh, because after the fallout he had with Vince, because uh, Larry wanted more money, and Larry was living in my hometown, Persephone. He was he he had a home here, and uh, he went to uh, he went to Pit, he went to uh, Berengaria, Minneapolis. Right. But I would take him back for shows, and we're uh, now I'm going People Express. Now we're coming we're coming from Maine, and we're going we're we have a show in Pittsburgh with Dominic. We're com- so we're coming from Maine. We're going to land in Newark. Change passengers and from Newark, staying on the same plane, going to Pittsburgh. And all of a sudden, three precipitate policemen come on who I knew. I grew up with these guys. They come on and they lock him up in handcuffs because his wife filed charges against them. About a month later, we're doing a show at Precipity High School, outdoor show. And it's sold out. And the policemen come over to my dad and they go, they all called him Mario because they knew him from, from town. They go, Mario, you got to go up there. There's a lady passing out new pictures of Larry Zabisco. <laughs> and it was his wife was out there passing out new pictures of Larry Zabisco. <laughs> Yikes. Mario, let me ask your opinion because... I, you know, as a fan, I always wondered, I mean, he had that huge feud with Bruno that drew like a gazillion dollars at Chase Stadium, you know, and, and at that time, Bob Backlund was the champion. I, I was absolutely positive that, you know, Larry was going to be Backlund to be the next champion. What happened there? Well, <clears throat> I, I think Larry created his own faith here. Uh, that was the biggest angle. And I got to tell you, that whole idea was Bruno. Bruno put that all together. It was planned like more than a year in advance. And Bruno would only let it happen the way he wanted it to happen. Like everybody was trying to, I guess, in the office, trying to push it, you know, to get to the, but Bruno just wouldn't let it go. You know, it had to go at at the rate he wanted it to go because he wanted it to be as big as it was. So we do Shea Stadium and uh, we get done. And and I want to go back to that Shea Stadium because that show almost didn't happen. Uh, We do Shea Stadium. And the week after we're doing Boston Gardens. So we're at my dad ran Boston Gardens. And Larry, me and my dad are in the office, and Larry comes in and he goes, uh, Angelo, I got to talk to you. So I said, I'll walk out. He said, no, no, you stay. You could stay. 
He says, uh, can you talk to Vince? And my dad said, yeah. He said, but tell Vince I'm not going on unless... And he's wrestling, he's wrestling Bruno in Boston Guards. He says, I'm not going on unless I get 10 grand. He said, just telling you right now, I'm not wrestling unless I get 10,000. So my dad called Vince and Vince back and forth. And my dad said to Vince, <clears throat> he said, there's no need talking to him. He ain't going to change his mind. He wants 10,000. So they gave him 10,000. But that changed the whole outlook for Larry. I think Larry jumped too quick. I think he's seen the chance to, I mean, because he was booked Boston, Springfield, Providence, Washington, Baltimore. I mean, you name it, Pittsburgh, you name it. And the return at Madison Square Garden, you name it. It was booked. It was, and he wanted $10,000 a show or he wasn't going to do it. And he got it. But then after that, that was it. So he held him up. That was, and that was his yeah, downfall. Yeah. Right. And Vince just let him go. And, you know, Bruno really tried to talk him out of it. He said to him, he said, you're going to make five, 6,000 tonight. You're not getting, you, you, I mean, there was, you, you could scalp tickets outside for $300. I mean, it was just jammed. The, the garden was jammed. And he said to him, he said, we're going to come back here two times, maybe three. What are you doing? And he said, no, but he was having troubles at home at this point. And, um, he just, that's what he did. And that, uh, that kind of cut his career short with Vince. Cause one thing with the old man, if you went up to him and asked him for something, most of the times you maybe won't get the whole thing, but you'd get something. But if you held him up, he was, he was turned off. That was it. You couldn't get back. He never came back. I don't think, did he? No, no, he never came back. But he did well where Larry's a great guy, man. You know, he did well where he is. I mean, uh, he was really big in, in, with Vern. He was, he was top man up there for a while. You know, and, and, you know, talking about Vern Gagne, I got to say one guy's name who is probably, to me, one of the best ever, and that's Nick Bockwinkle. Oh, yeah. I mm -hmm. love that guy. I mean, we did a, we did a uh, Mega Moments of Wrestling, and uh, we did this in Vegas, and we had a panel, and on the panel was Hacksaw Jim Duggan, uh, Hunky Tonk, Les Thatcher, he was the commentator, uh, Nick Bockwinkle, and uh, what the hell was his name? George Steele. And George Steele. That was the panel. I mean, what a group of guys, right? I mean, just think about that. You're talking top shelf. So we're getting ready to sit. And George Steele and Nick loved to play ribs on everybody they said put hacksaw we had these big giant pitchers made they were like maybe four foot wide by eight foot high and he he said put hacksaw under 
Stone Cold's picture, Steve Austin. So I didn't know what the hell they were doing. So we set the chairs where we put we put Hacksaw under the chair. So we're doing the commentating and they're talking and and we can, they said keep the cameras going. Don't don't and we have this on tape. Keep the cameras rolling. So they're over there and and they're going. Uh, Nick Bockwinkle goes, uh, yeah. He says, you know, like you know, with the WWF. I mean, you know, you had some hard times there. You had some guys. I heard you were supposed to be the champion, and he was. They were giving the belt to Hacksaw. From it was going to go from Stone Cold to Hacksaw, but Stone Cold wouldn't do the job for Hacksaw. He didn't like him. They wouldn't do the job. So they kept pressuring him and busting his balls while he's doing it, and he's getting hot. He is really starting to get pissed off. And George Steele comes and he goes, well, he says, why are you getting so pissed off? Look up. Your idol is right above you. Well, he <laughs> turned around and seen that picture. He started punching it. Now, this is our whole set. He starts punching the picture, ripping it apart. We have this all on film, by the way. And uh, we just had the greatest time with that group. I mean, we we were in Vegas for five days, and and uh, it was just a great time. It was just a great time. It was a, it was a great time to be in wrestling. And well, and it's guys like oh, it's ahead. guys like you that keep it alive, and that is so good. That is, that, that is so good. You guys are a credit to it because without you guys, most people wouldn't know. They they wouldn't know. I mean, you interview Davy O'Hannon. You interview these people, Johnny Rods. I mean, these guys, you know, like there couldn't have been a business without Davy O'Hannon or Johnny Rods. I think if you remember earlier, I told you when I took Tito and Teddy in. You needed somebody to make them look like they were million-dollar guys. And let me tell you something. That's what Johnny Rods did. That's what Davey O'Hannon did. That's what Estrada did. Pete Sanchez. S.D. Jones. Maybe so that yeah. line. These guys were the best of the best. They, could, they all could have been superstars. They just were considered. Vince had... But one thing to Vince, I'm going up the subject here. One thing to Vince, when we used to do Madison Square Garden, several times Vince would send me upstairs to go get the pay, to go get the advance. And he would he would give me a bunch of $100 bills. He says, you, and the guys will be all lined on the wall, the guys that are not working. And he says, you give each guy a $100 bill. And he would go, and those guys, Johnny Rods and Estrada, uh, all those guys, Pete Sanchez, they would all get a hundred bucks for coming to the garden. Now I'm talking, I'm talking in the late sixties, seventies. Hundred dollars was a lot of money. Yeah, a nice little payday. I mean, our our normal payoff for North Attleboro was twenty five, thirty dollars. You know, I mean, but. Then you'd go to Boston Garden, it'd be two, three hundred dollars. So, you know, you went home, a guy like Pete Sanchez or, or Johnny Rods, they went home with four fifty, five hundred dollars. That was big money in those days. Oh yeah. 
<laughs> well, as I, we... I just... No, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, no. You're, you're fine. Go ahead. I'm... I was going to say, I don't know if I told you, but I was looking at my dad's book in, in 1965 or 66 in Boston Gardens. You know, he. I have all the books. My dad kept all the, uh, all the logs of who the matches was, who won, and the take of the house and everything. In wow. 1965-66, I could be wrong with the year, but not by more than a year. They did 69000 in Boston Gardens. How much money is that today? A million bucks. Yeah, it's a lot, a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> So wrestling always did well. It, it, you know, like it's bigger today because they exploit it more. Vince Sr. didn't want to exploit it. He kept it low key. I remember Vince telling the reporter, how was the garden? The garden was sold out, standing room. Many, many times they opened the screens downstairs and he would tell the reporter and he would give him 50 bucks and he would tell the reporter, we had half a house. <laughs> and that's what they would print. The reason he didn't want other promoters to see what he was doing because he was afraid they would try to come into his territory, which Einhardt tried. Well, as we wrap up here, gentlemen, final question. We talked about the network and you've shared a bunch of stories uh, one, is there any plans for future expansion of content? And two, can fans suggest any content they're hoping you all upload? Well, as far so, as suggesting the content, uh, they could do that through the Saboldi library. You know, and if we have it, we'll definitely do it that way. As far as expanding, we have several organizations that are looking to join us on this. And they're the uh, like the Gino Caruso, the ECPW, we're talking with Tommy on the IPEW. There's several different outlets in several different cities in different states that are looking to, to, to maybe jump in. So we're going to try to make this a place where wrestling fans can really go and see what wrestling was like and in some cases what it is today. But if you take the local promoters, I'm talking about the ECPW, the Gino Caruso's and the Tommy Fierro's, you look at their promotions, it's old time wrestling today. It's, it's not what you're seeing on, on uh, WWE or, or AEW. I mean, before the match starts, they do 27 moves. You know, it used to be grab a headlock, hold it, push me off, drop down, grab the headlock again. <laughs> and place would go crazy. Now, before the bell rings, they do 17 moves. It's it's a whole different thing. Mm. No, you're right about that. Nobody just shoots off and starts anymore. And not to mention... Benny, how many matches, you know, we, we've watched some of the current product for the na fat nature of the show. 
And like he just said, how many matches? There's 10 minutes of fighting outside, you know, including using, using weapons before the match even starts. Well, I, I think it was Jim Cornette said he watched a Monday Night Raw. And for the first two and a half hours of the show, there was, I think, 22 minutes of wrestling, actual wrestling in the ring. That's that's crazy. You, you know, I, I don't want to call anybody out specifically, but um, AEW this past we're recording this on a tuesday the pat the show, uh, rampage the show they had just a couple of days ago on friday night had an entire match involving a basketball where they were hitting each other with and the announcers kept having to commentate like uh i guess basketballs are legal like even the announcers were dumbfounded what happened and then the main event ended in a disqualification and <laughs> i was cracking up because the announcer's like oh uh yeah uh we do have rules here. Like sometimes people do get disqualified, and it's like you—you know—you had to actually tell the fans watching the show that someone outside the ring attacking one of the wrestlers is against the rules, and because there was there was a, a genuine confusion when the ref disqualified somebody. Even though the last eighty-eight times it happened, they didn't get DQ'd. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. We we, we got to remind our viewers we actually do have rules sometimes. You right. know, if you take a guy like Cornette, there's another great guy. I mean, there's a guy that knows wrestling. That guy knows wrestling. He's He's been through it all. He's been on the bottom and he's been on the top. So he knows what's happening. For him to come out, I read his article. I mean, I can't see how people pay to go see that. I I just, I don't get it. I, I just, in my mind, I, I can't, I can't put it together how this is not what wrestling was supposed to be. You know, the sad part is each match does the same damn thing. Each match count the same moves in each match. Do you know that whenever somebody had a finishing move like a Bruno move, you better not even go near there. If you went near there, you'd get slapped to shit in the, in the dressing room. You couldn't go near that move. When Andre was in town, don't use your leg because that was Andre's big finish. Put the leg up, you run into the leg, and it's over. And Hulk Hogan, don't you dare pick it up for a big slam. The bear hug, you couldn't touch the bear hug. Each guy had a move, and everybody respected that. Today, you watch the first match, you watch the last match, and you're not sure if the first match was first or the last match was last, because they were all the same. They were all identical. And, and it's, it's, it's a damn shame. It's a damn shame to the to the wrestling profession, but it's also a damn shame to the paying customer because in reality, I think they went there for more than that basketball game. <laughs> I'm sure they didn't. If they wanted to go to a basketball game, they would have went to a basketball game. Well, you know, I'm not really sure though, Mario, because I, I did a post on Facebook and I used an analogy. I said, you know, I grew up 
with the filet mignon of wrestling. I had the, you know, the Brunos and, and the superstar Billy Grahams and the Ken Pateras and, you know, the Ivan Koloffs. And, you know, I liken it. That was filet mignon. What we see on Monday night is Alpo. But, I mean, if, you can, if you've grown up and been fed Alpo your whole life, you probably think Alpo's not too bad. I guess it's, you know, the fact that we, you know, we lived through the filet mignon era that we can, you know, we can say, well, this, this you know, this stuff's a bunch of shit. As opposed to the, the younger fans who know nothing else, to them it's okay, I guess. Oh, I agree with you there. I agree with you. It's the way they were brought up on it. And mm-hmm. and the sad part is it's going to come down. It's And it's going to bust. And, you know, for a while there, wrestling got real bad there. And it's, it's getting to the thing is that if you watch any show, you're watching the same show, different people but you're watching the same thing. It used to be WCW had their whole thing going. Vince had his stuff, but, but if you, if you know, like, but again, television destroyed it because if you were with Crockett, you only seen that program in, in, in that area. If, if you were with burn, you only seen it in Minneapolis. If you were with LaBelle, you only seen it in California. If you're with the funk, you only seen it in Texas. Now, what you see, you see every place. So you are seeing basically the same thing over and over again. I mean, is there a difference between any of the groups? I, I haven't watched them, and I don't watch them. But is there a difference? I don't know. I mean, you guys watch it. Is there a difference between I, what they do? I don't watch it, Mario. I can't. No. Oh, yeah. Well, you're like me, did. <laughs> oh, I got better things to do on Monday night. Well, I hope people will just take Amen. a look at our, our, our station. I really uh, do, because I, I think you're going to see what it used to be like. And and the good thing is, is that, fortunately, we got to work with every major station. And, and if, the way it used to be is we would give them our tapes and they would show our tapes. We would take their tapes. The one thing I did do is I was very fortunate. My dad taught me very early was most of these territories, when they filmed the matches, they would take those tapes, send them out. And when the tapes came back, they would use them for the next week. I did. I kept every single week. Every single week we have. It's all cataloged. It, and, and like I said, there's close to and We got tapes from AEW. We gave them our tapes. Oli gave us tapes. Anderson gave us tapes. Cologne gave us, I mean, everybody. And we have those. And, and, and uh, we kept them in, in, in prestige. When I went to Puerto Rico, they had no tapes. I said, what about your vault? You know, what about, well, we keep them for like six months and then we reuse them. And, you know, like I know uh, Ben, uh, Ben Brown, who's a good friend of mine from W uh, from WWE. Uh, he, he asked me, he said, do you know, is there anybody who has the tapes from Albuquerque? Because at one point when we did Amarillo, Albuquerque was part of that territory. And I said, they destroyed every week. They would destroy the tapes. They wouldn't keep them. I tried to talk them out of it, but they wouldn't keep them because 
at that time, uh, a three-quarter tape cost like $3. They didn't want to keep the $3. They'd rather use the tape. And that's why WWE, the only reason WWE has so much content, well, they bought a lot. Uh, you know, they, they made us a hell of an offer. and We, we refused it. Uh, but they bought a lot. But they were very fortunate because when television just started in Chicago, they kept those tapes. So they were able to get that, the tape, but they're not showing any of that. And I was really surprised with that, that they're not showing that black and white that they have. I have maybe 30, 40 hours of black and white, the gorgeous George stuff, my dad, uh, but they're loaded with it. And I was, I'm just surprised that they haven't, or maybe they do offer it on their, on their, on their pay. I don't know. Well, gentlemen, I, we appreciate all the time. I know, uh, you know, <laughs> it seems like every week we say we could keep talking and hear so many more stories and still not scratch the surface of everything you've got to say. But as we wrap up, uh, Brian, I'll start with you. And any final thoughts? So first off, thank you very much for having us. Ultimate Classic Wrestling um, has been a major, major undertaking. I am very proud to be out of retirement, as Mario mentioned, um, and like you guys, I could sit here for hours and, and listen to the stories and talk about the experiences. Um, I'm looking forward to sitting down and watching Ultimate Classic Wrestling um, and all of the, the great leagues and uh, just reliving those memories. And uh, I hope everybody that uh, is a is a true wrestling fan, especially of the classics, uh, will tune into it too and, and really enjoy it. Well said. Uh, Mario, any final thoughts? Well, my biggest thought is I want to thank you guys because, like I said earlier, if it wasn't for you guys, this would all be forgotten. Most people would never have the opportunity to know what happens, who drove where, how many guys are in the car. You guys bring it all out. So my biggest thing is thank you guys for giving us the opportunity tell you what wrestling was really like we appreciate the time we appreciate the stories uh so uh, another great episode in the books for the bs express himself benny scala for mario for brian thank you guys guys so much for coming we talked about a lot tonight and we really want to hit on of course the ultimate classic wrestling so for dan and benny in the ring and ultimate classic wrestling i'm dan spash have a good night everyone and we will see you next time we're in the ring